carbon usage that just won't budge it. This week, the city has released its carbon budget, which projects the city is coming nowhere close to meeting its goals, despite not really trying. We'll also take a sneak peek at the operating budget absolutely chock full of not trying. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 197. Chalk off that climate optimism we've had in a couple previous episodes. I remember I was saying that I was very enheartened by uh, Tim Cartmel's comments and just waiting will get me my solar rebate. Well, Mm -hmm. Mac, this episode is going to be the Crushing Your Dreams podcast episode. (laughs) This is the one where we identify what they really think is important by looking at where they're going to spend their money. Yeah. And speaking of crushing dreams, if you had dreams of good jokes, well, here's the rapid fire to crush those dreams. With the start of FIFA World Cup in Qatar in late November, Alberta bars have been granted an exemption to serve alcohol in the early morning hours, starting from 5.30 a.m. The stark time difference between the two nations means that some games will be starting before dawn, and Albertans will need that extra early morning binge drinking to get sufficiently drunk by the time kickoff occurs, such that their vision is blurry enough to think that they're watching hockey. A condo owner in downtown Edmonton has gotten a ruling from an Alberta judge this week compelling the condo board to investigate poor sound isolation between the common room and the residence unit. While the complaint had been ignored for several years, things came to an inflection point in the past month when, in the judge's estimation, someone watching Daniel Smith's live streams in the common room constituted, quote, cruel and unusual punishment for the overhearing resident. Edmonton Valley Zoo is warning that without funding for additional improvements and repairs, it's at risk of losing its accreditation and being forced to close. This has many animals at the facility concerned. Said the Red Pandas we talked to, quote, with housing unaffordability on the rise in Edmonton and affordable units often disallowing animals, houselessness is a real possibility for us. I know people say they want to talk about the elephant in the room, but for once, could the Twitter bots focus on the other types of animals in the room as well? Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Connect First Credit Union, who sent along this clip. Do you ever feel like just a number? A digit, a denominator, a decimal, another cog in the big bank machine, waiting on hold, online, never on time, and always on your dime. Like your worth is only calculated by your net worth. In a world full of numbers, it's nice to know there's a place where you're not one. Connect First Credit Union. Bank on a brighter future. It's November, Mac. We're reaching the end of the year and City Council just loves to give us this end of the year slog where we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We can see our vacation coming up. But first, we've got to get through budget. And oh boy, this year, budget is going to be a big one. Another week, another update on the budget. This time we got the proposed operating budget for the 2023-2026 budget period. This budget is all about the programs and services and things that we need to do to keep the city running. So it's not about building infrastructure like the capital budget that we talked about previously. And what the city is proposing is annual revenues and expenditures. So the amount they're going to spend every year ranging from $3.2 billion next year to $3.5 billion 
in 2026. And it talks about, again, just like the capital budget, focusing on maintaining services. But the news release about this also talked about financing transformational projects. Mac, I've never clicked a news release so fast as when that one came in my inbox. Transformational projects, those things, those are exciting to me. You can imagine my disappointment when I opened the news release and was unable to find any transformational projects. Yeah, I did look for you, Troy. So this budget document is a monster. It's 898 pages. If you search all of those pages for the word transformational, it comes up 28 times. (laughs) Okay. Not sure if that's a lot or not. Uh, And if you look at what it comes up in relation to, there are some things that I think could reasonably be considered transformational. So for example, the zoning bylaw renewal plan, district plans, and the growth management framework. These are one of the three of the things that the city defines as transformational. They're the big city moves from the city plan. I think you could make a case that those things are transformational, no? I would fully agree that they're transformational. City comms people, put that in your press release next time because Didn't mention those. Was there anything else in there that was transformational and exciting? Well, that was the only thing that jumped out at me. I was like, yeah, I can see why they put transformational. The other stuff is a little bit more questionable. So uh, right off the top, you mentioned in the in the joke about uh, the Valley Zoo. Well, another one, Fort Edmonton Park also has an unfunded budget profile. And uh, it is described as, Fort Edmonton Park is described as an anchor tourism experience that will have a transformational impact on establishing Edmonton as a destination. Can I just pause right there? Correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe it was all a dream, but I think Fort Edmonton Park exists, no? Like, currently? (laughs) It does indeed exist. It is a thing you can go to. So how exactly would that be transformational? The nature of the word transformational means transform. In order for Fort Edmonton Park to transform Edmonton into a destination, it needs not already be that. How is that transformational? (laughs) That's just buzzwords for buzzwords sake. In this uh, budget profile, they're not, of course, talking about building new things at Fort Edmonton Park. We already spent $165 million to expand Fort Edmonton Park through the last budget cycle. And that was pretty well received. I think the Indigenous people's experience is a pretty awesome addition to Fort Edmonton Park. I don't know if you've been, Troy, but it's pretty cool. Uh, But this budget profile is about direct interpretive staff and maintenance, custodial and support personnel to support those expanded operations. And if that doesn't get you excited about transformational projects, I have one other thing to mention in the budget. This one's really going to light a fire under you. Financial and Corporate Services has a project called Enterprise Commons that is described as a critical transformational project. (laughs) Uh, Of course, it's got to be some EDRMS or something like that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, not as many transformationals in the actual budget document as the headline would make you believe there is. I think we can dig into a little bit of this budget. This is not going to be the in-depth budget episode. These budgets just came out. And as Mac mentioned, several hundred pages. We suffer for you, dear listener, but not quite that much. It's still just a Thursday. Uh, So we'll suffer through them in the coming weeks to really get you the best takes. But my first sort of overall thoughts, having looked at the capital budgets and the operational budgets and the newly released carbon budget, which just came out yesterday on Wednesday, my overall reaction is meh. This budget 
the collection of budgets seems very status quo. Uh, I mean, you mentioned off the top that city staff are describing it a little bit that way with, you know, maintaining, holding the line, funding existing services, that sort of thing. And I think very clearly this is a budget designed to not do anything exciting, but rather just go. Which is sort of a reflection of the amount of money that's available for them to do anything with, right? We've talked about how in the capital budget, a lot of it is already allocated to things and there's not as much new money for for, for new uh, capital projects in the operating budget. You know, there's similar similar situation. We've already allocated a whole bunch of new money to the police, for example. Inflation is a real impact on the amount of money that the city has. So they're somewhat limited in what they can spend on in both the capital and the operating budget. But I think you're right that the highlight should have been, I think, that we are taking climate change seriously. We've won all these awards and done all this great work to develop a carbon budget. We have a community energy and transition plan. And now we're going to put some things into our budgets where we actually spend money that is going to help us make progress on those plans. And so far, our initial read of this is that they have not done that. I think that's a very good way of framing exactly why these budgets are so underwhelming, because I think if I was to describe these budgets in a couple words, it would be a pre-city plan budget. Mm. This is a budget that, you know, if it came out in 2014, I'd be like, okay, this is par for the course. We have passed city plan. We have passed many policy guiding documents that demand better from these budgets. And that's the fundamental problem here. This is not a city plan budget. Let's talk a little bit about the carbon budget because city plan does talk about climate resiliency. It does talk about the need to tackle the climate emergency. Yeah. Right off the bat, the carbon budget makes very clear that we are not even attempting to achieve our climate goals. We have set out targets. There's a helpful graph in the carbon budget that says, here are our targets and here's where we're going, which is essentially a flat line. We are not doing very much at all. And while we're aiming to be net zero by uh, 2050, our actual emissions in 2050 will be closer to 12 and a half million tons of CO2. That's barely a decrease from where we are right now. And even in the shorter term, the current budget cycle ending in 2026, the chart is supposed to put us, you know, a couple million tons of CO2 lower, and we're just not, not approaching it. I think it's a shocking, shocking chart. There's a, there's a couple of charts in there. One, it's shocking to me that they turned it into a chart <laughs> because then you can see so easily what you're describing, right? Which is that even though we've said all of these things and climate change is really important for us to take action on, you know, we're not going to be anywhere close to that. We're not even going to have any kind of a reduction with the proposed requests. And there's, you know, both the corporate carbon budget. So this is what the city of Edmonton itself does. It's pretty much a flat line. It's a little bit lower. And then there's the community carbon budget, which is everything else in Edmonton. And that one is, you know, hovering around the 13 or 14 million tons of carbon emissions all the way through to 2050. Uh, so there's huge, huge deficit in terms of where our targets are and what we're actually currently planning to do about it. And this is, I guess, from you know a more macro point of view, pretty much in line with the rest of the world, right? We're about to go into COP27. The mayor is going, actually. And uh, you know we've heard some information from the UN folks about how you know, the previous idea of holding the line at 1.5 degrees uh, is no longer even feasible. Like it's, we've long missed that milestone. 
and that you know with the commitments that countries have made and then you know trickling down into other governments within those countries like we're nowhere close to achieving that so from that point of view edmonton i guess is right on track but for all of the talk about being a leader here it's pretty disappointing to see i remember when we talked about the carbon budget with a guest on this podcast. One of the things that slipped by us in the episode that neither you or I really decided to pursue very hard, because at least from my perspective, I wanted to see what the carbon budget looked like. Yeah. He mentioned that the costs of capital construction aren't included in the carbon budget. So for a roadway, it will be budgeting for the increased vehicle usage of the roadway, but it won't be budgeting for the asphalt that is going into building the roadway. Right. Both you and I had a little moment of, well, isn't that the easiest aspect (laughs) to include in the carbon budget? Right. And I think there's no better indication of why that has failed as a carbon budgeting tool than looking at the carbon budget and seeing that the Gateway Boulevard redevelopment, this project from University Ave to White Ave, is basically tearing up all four lanes of roadway, putting down four new lanes of roadway and not installing any sidewalks where they don't exist already. So it is very much a like for like project, but the carbon budget says, eh, it's a wash because, you know, there's not going to be any new demand for the roadway because we put the existing roadway back in and even says, "Hmm, you know, we might install half a sidewalk somewhere. So maybe this will actually reduce our carbon budget, (laughs) not accounting for all the dump trucks moving a ton of literal carbon in and out of the zone to build this. To say that these types of roadway projects don't have a carbon impact is on its face completely absurd. Uh, I think it's worse, right? Is, isn't the uh, the carbon budget actually just lumping all of these road projects together? For sure. The first thing I thought to do when the carbon budget was released was open the document and control F for Terwilliger Drive. Mm-hmm. I want to see exactly how much carbon Terwilliger Drive is costing us. Right. And Mac, there's not an answer to that question. Every roadway project that is in the capital budget is lumped together as a sort of systems approach. And I can see where the carbon budget is coming from here. It's saying that no roadway exists independently of each other. So there's some systems approach that needs to be taken and we need to look at the system as a whole, which sounds nice and is very flowery language. But the effect of it is if you're a counselor and you're seeing, okay, Terwilliger Drive is going to cost us tens to hundreds of millions of dollars and this much carbon. Well, you can't see that anymore because it prescribes that you need to approve administration's entire roadway budget, which includes Yellowhead Freeway, which includes Terwilliger Drive, which includes the 50th Street overpass for trains. And that's going to be 12,800 tons of CO2. Now, what if you said, well, let's remove Terwilliger Drive from that? That information is not available, which I think is a very fundamental failing. And I think it's clear why they didn't include the carbon budget on the capital profiles in the budget. You have to sort of rifle through appendices to even find if there is a carbon budget for the particular line item, which means it's kind of designed not to be used. Part of that to Williger Drive project is actually put under a different composite profile, which is transit. So they've lumped similarly all of the transit things together. So capital line uh, extension, metro line extension, valley line west. And then there's a line in there that says mass transit network. And so the buses that it might go along, you know, to Williger Drive are are lumped into there. And that one kind of funny to me because that's $2.3 billion, which is like most of the budget (laughs) for the next four years, lumped into this one single, you know, project and the amount of emissions they 
estimate the reduction in this case is shockingly low considering how much money we're spending there. And it's weird that we can't tease out these projects. I just want to mention one other thing on the carbon budget. And it was something that was particularly galling to me because it showed just how little we've learned over the past 40 years. And that was on the Yellowhead Freeway Project, which reasonable people can disagree about whether or not we should do it. I'm a reasonable person that's saying we shouldn't. Yeah. But in the description of the GHG impacts of the uh, Yellowhead Freeway Conversion Project, it mentions that considering increases in population, the project can enable decreases in emissions related to reduced congestion. Mac, I thought we had settled the debate on induced demand. I thought we had settled the debate on widening roads being good for the climate. Apparently, no one told the people working on the climate and carbon budget file at the city of Edmonton. I mean, that is that is shocking, right? Even if you wanted to do some sort of fancy math around time spent at traffic lights and all that nonsense, like surely the induced demand and the expansion of that roadway would eliminate any possible gain you might get from removing traffic lights and turning it into a freeway. It's shocking. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the carbon budget. And unfortunately, I've dismissed the carbon budget as a useful tool, (laughs) at least this year. But there is a real budget going on, our operating budget. And maybe there's some climate stuff in there. Mac, did you do a search for some climate stuff in the operating budget? Well, I did. And it's, you know, preliminary as well. There's a handful of small profiles in here uh, in the operating budget that are related to environment and climate resilience. And one of them jumped out at me. It's called Energy Transition Strategy Implementation Composite. So this is a composite profile for all of the things that they need to do to implement that energy transition strategy that I was talking about. So I was like, aha, it's in here. They have something. And then I looked. It has $2 million dollars in 2023, and $8 million in 2024. And that's it, actually, for the entire four-year budget. That's what this composite profile includes. Now, I know this is the operating budget, so this is like people, probably, right? These are staff people at the city who are going to help implement these, these programs and things like that. But it's a shockingly low amount to me of spending, which I guess is why, you know, those charts and the carbon budget are horizontal lines, because we're not actually putting the money in to make measurable changes. Unfortunately, looking at all of these budgets, uh, I was a bit dismissive of you in previous episodes where you said that this council in search for some money may put off tomorrow's problems, Mm e.g. the climate for today's problems. And uh, turns out there's a canary in this coal mine and he's choking on all the carbon (laughs) smog. Mac, I do not think this budget is going to do anything for the climate unless city council takes a huge concerted and fully backboned stance against what administration has proposed here. And of course, there's downsides to doing that as well. You know, that if there's no profiles to fund, city council may have to just set aside money for some programs that aren't yet developed. And as we saw with holding that $10 million in abeyance from the police service, you know, if we hold money back without a dedicated funding source, Usually it just ends up going back to where we were originally going to put it. So this is something we're going to be keeping a close eye on over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and the optimistic take, I I guess here, Troy, is that there's a chance still. So this will go to uh, City Council on November 14th. They will get to ask questions of administration and submit written questions, just like with the capital budget. And then there will be a public hearing November 28th and 29th for both the capital and operating budget. So 
if council hasn't started asking hard questions about what we're doing on climate, the public surely can during that public hearing. And then in December, we'll continue to pay attention to this. And that's when council will really get into making the uh, decisions about the budget. I mean, granted, the public has weighed in a little bit. The city had released a online budget tool where citizens could go and design their own city budget. And in that city budget, 43% of participants said that they wanted a decrease in the police budget, with only 29% saying they wanted an increase. And yet, there's only a single item that council has guaranteed operational funding (laughs) increases to this year. And Mac, that is the Edmonton Police Service. It's disheartening, isn't it, Troy, that the opportunity to listen to the people has been passed. Now, Sure, this tool is probably not super representative of Edmontonians. I'm sure there's huge margins of error and things like that. But still, it is a level of input that should have been considered when making that decision, which is why in previous episodes, you know, we were talking about probably they're going to hold off on doing anything with the police budget because there's other things going on with the budget. Well, we were wrong about that. And and here we are disappointing 43% of people that use this tool. I think the other thing that was highlighted in that engagement activity was about snow and ice control, which is always something that people want more of. And although council has not officially committed to spending more money on that, I mean, I feel like they effectively have, Troy, in that they've approved some money for this year. There is a a budget profile for future years to increase that further. I think they hear loud and clear in their inboxes and things about people's complaints about winter road maintenance. But 70% of people that filled out the the survey said this was the most critical city service was winter road maintenance. So the city's release proposed $92.8 million for new and enhanced services, specifically like the downtown vibrancy strategy. And there are some specific ways that administration is proposing to increase downtown vibrancy. And one of them is called the Small Scale Community Amenities Plan. Yeah, this was something that committee discussed last week and then council this week approved their recommendation, which is to pursue options for cost sharing on this. So small scale community amenities, uh, what they're talking about there is, you know, things downtown in the downtown area that might improve recreation opportunities, improve wellness, social wellness, things like that for people who live in the downtown, which as a downtown resident, sounds really great to me, right? They had this uh, report that went to committee, and one of the things that uh, administration proposed were these court-style activities, so things like a basketball court. And they went so far as to say that in true City of Edmonton fashion, we could do a pilot project, and they could build (laughs) up to four of these small court-style amenities like a basketball court. So each location would include colored asphalt, one basketball hoop, one basketball hoop, (laughs) painted lines, benches, planters, and a drinking fountain. And each of them would cost about $100,000. So they'd spend 400 grand on this pilot, which it's not a huge amount of money. It's maybe a lot of money for what you get, like a basketball hoop and some paint and some benches. But I guess that's the way the city does these things, Troy. There were some other ideas in this report, such as $500,000 grant for placemaking and community activation activities. They might be able to fund, they think, 10 to 20 of these things a year. Maybe they could build some more permanent parks that have a uh, recreation focus. Uh, and they're specifically talking there about pocket parks, not big ones, because we we do have the warehouse district park coming in a few years. And then also potentially giving some money toward private spaces. So maybe discounted public access to, to private facilities. I read all of this, Troy, and, you know, the takeaway from this week for council is they don't want to spend money on this. They want to pursue 
options to spend less money on it by cost sharing with other organizations. And, you know, that's fine. I get it. The budget is challenging and we've got to try to save money where we can. They kind of agree this is a good thing to be doing, but maybe not for the city to be funding entirely. But I'm here thinking, why does it have to cost so much? There's a few things that come to mind. One is like, what does placemaking even mean anymore? What does that mean to you, Troy? Well, placemaking means that someone at the city is getting a promotion for a good idea. (laughs) I think it has fully transcended any meaning and moved into buzzword territory. uh, Because I recall placemaking as, imagine Jasper Ave uh, installing a ping pong table beside a busy six lane roadway that was placemaking i also recall putting up a poster that they got at banners that morning for the nathan fillion civilian pavilion on city hall that was placemaking and those those are two very different things both of which had the same muted result i think true placemaking if we're describing it is the thing that you write about in a mommy blog the thing that is unique to this place because the community has come together and built something. that That's placemaking. Or maybe just as simple as making a place more usable. So one of the things that has happened in downtown recently is we've painted some alleys, which nobody walks down, and we've put some beautiful, uh, you know, painted colorful dots in Michael Fair Park. Now, my daughter loves the dots and it's beautiful. It's really nice to walk through there. They're really colorful, they're bright, they're all over the walls. But at the end of the day, it's just paint. You can't do anything else in that park, you know, more than you could before, which is basically to just walk through it and avoid the people sleeping there. And that's fine. I have no problem with them sleeping there. But like they could have made that space more usable. If we're talking about increasing wellness and recreational opportunities, I don't understand why it's so difficult to put in some of those adult exercise equipment things that you see in every other city. Having, you know, a little walker or stepper or whatever in Michael Fair Park would be a great addition to that park, I think. Mac, they already offered you a single basketball hoop for $100,000. What more <laughs> do you want? Uh, I guess it could be worse, right? It could be, what is it in, in California right now? $1.7 million for one toilet. And that was the other thing that jumped out at me about this, Troy, which is that the city says in order for any of the above approaches to be successful... Other amenities would be required in close proximity to support the activity. And they list things like publicly accessible washrooms and drinking water, lighting upgrades, safe, pleasant pedestrian routes, bike routes, and secure bike parking. And I just couldn't get past publicly accessible washrooms. And again, City of Edmonton people, if you're listening, I'm going to get on my high horse again. Just open the washrooms you already have. We've actually been working on this, Troy. I've been over to uh, the Boyle Renaissance where they've uh, just opened this really beautiful new playground. There are two public washrooms in that building. They are always locked. If you ask the city about it, they'll say, no, they're not. They're open. Every time you go there, they are locked. Just open the washrooms we already have and we can make so much more of these placemaking activities actually functional. It just boggles the mind. So Am I optimistic that we're going to get something really exciting here for downtown? No, not really. But I am glad that there's a little bit of discussion about, you know, increasing the livability of downtown and not just, you know, trying to attract tourism or visitors who are going to come for a hockey game. And I think that's a really important point that bears repeating because, you know, while I described placemaking as the thing that can attract tourism, it was through the frame of 
tourists like to go to interesting places and interesting places organically build themselves. If the city is not great for people living in it, it's not going to be a world-class tourist destination. 100%. I think of Ice District, for example. We built these beautiful buildings. The sidewalks have very nice pavers. There's some fancy bike racks that have angular designs. Stantec Tower looks pretty. And yet, except when a hockey game is going on, the place is dead. There is nothing going on there. And it's just because... This is not something that we've designed for use by the people that are there. It is for use of the people that are driving in and parking in the parkades and the gravel parking lots and then leaving as soon as the event is done. And to that very point, the people who are driving in and go into Roger's Place, there's bathrooms inside Roger's Place that are behind security and gated. They have no need for the public bathroom. The public bathroom is for people who live there. And these are the types of people that we consistently and repeatedly ignore. And speaking of empty lots and spaces, let's talk a little bit about urban agriculture, which also came up this week. Yeah, well, it came up because we did a story about it at Tappert Edmonton, uh, which you can read. So we're now about a decade into Fresh, which is the city's strategy on urban food and agriculture. And we wanted to check in and see how much progress have we made on that. And one of the areas we decided to focus on was really about urban agriculture. And, you know, some of the successes that the city has had over the last 10 years is that we've made some zoning changes. And I remember being involved a little bit in that when I was a member of the um, Edmonton Food Council. And it was really exciting to see in 2016, zoning bylaws change to allow more urban agriculture to happen within the city. But now people are looking at it and saying, you know, we did make some changes and that's a good thing. But there's still lots of difficulties in selling the food that is grown here and in getting permission to grow the amount of food that might actually make our food and agriculture system more resilient, which is what Fresh set out to do in the first place. So if we want to provide the opportunities within the city for people to grow food that they can you know, use to support themselves and sell and su- to support their community to feed, to feed other people, we're not there yet. So uh, that was kind of what we learned about where did we get to with the urban agriculture aspect of Fresh. So, I mean, the thing about urban agriculture is technically I'm doing it. I planted three stalks of corn this summer and yielded exactly half an ear of corn. So do (laughs) we have a sense of how much stuff we're actually growing? Not really, no. That is one of the other problems that uh, advocates for this kind of thing have have found. So globally, we know that roughly just under 6% of food production happens within cities. So it's pretty small, right? And in Edmonton, we don't track that. So we don't know how much food is grown within the city or within urban areas. And the city hasn't really followed up and done any surveys about this kind of thing either. Like a census? (laughs) Like a (laughs) municipal census. We do know that there are Lots of community gardens. That's where I grow some food for uh, for my family. My daughter loves all the tomatoes, and there are you know some things that are grown on private property and in other community spaces. And there was things you know through the pandemic like the the pop up community gardens pilot, which had you know planters and garden sites distributed around the city, which was pretty successful and really popular, I think actually. But we don't actually know you know how much food we're producing. The gist is, is is that we're probably not producing anywhere close to the amount of food we need to to even move the needle toward being more you know self-sufficient and resilient. 
Well, nothing says self-sufficiency and resilience like a business owner that has more meetings than hours in a day, but is calm and collected when their group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Yeah, that's right. I rephrased the ad this week, but I'll still tell you that your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online, anytime, on any device. It makes it easier for them and for you. You can learn more about your options at ab.bluecross.ca. And Mac, that's all for this week. Uh, I don't want to belabor the point because we've got several hundred pages of budget documents to read. So I'll just say that until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.